Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. This is Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Thanks for listening today. And we have Dr. Shan Hussain with us. Hello, Shan. Hi, Haider. How are you? Yes, I'm very... Well, I'm not very well, actually. I'm quite hot and flustered with this current heat wave. Um, but, you know, we love to complain about the weather, don't we, as, as Brits? <laughs> yes, uh, I, I guess uh, a lot of us do, but uh, I'm just making the most of it. This is a glorious summer we're experiencing, and uh, I can't remember it ever being this pleasant here in the UK. Yeah, so. really, really hot. I, I remember one time I was an SHO in the Royal Free, and it got to about 40 degrees. This was mm-hmm. 2003, I think. And um, it wasn't nice, I must say. There was no aircon in the hospital, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was quite a difficult time to work in. And going home and trying to sleep with no aircon. Do you have aircon in your home? No, we don't. Oh. No, I don't think we can justify it, uh, given how uh, infrequent these hot days are. <laughs> cool. So um, you've. You've done quite a lot in your uh, career. I mean, uh, tell us, tell us about. I mean, we 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 actually qualified the same year in 1999. I was at Barts in London. That's correct. Yes, I was at Imperial in London, um, a little bit west of you. But uh, yes, we were kind sure of we enemies. Just... We're, we're kind of enemies, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, maybe friendly rivals. Let's say. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think there was any doubt which was the superior medical school. But let's not get into that. Um, Thanks for uh, mentioning. Yes, yeah, superior. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> cool. So, um, so you're based in Nottingham. Were you? Did, did you grow up in Nottingham? Yes, uh, born and bred here in Nottingham, and um, I lived here for my first 19 years, and then went to London the same time as you, back in 94, and graduated in 99. Came back here probably a year or so later, um, and uh, I've stayed here ever since. It's, it's my hometown. I love it here, and um, uh, I've got my friends and family here, so um, very happy and settled here. I, I sense that sort of London was, was it difficult? studying there working there what was it like i loved being in london i didn't particularly enjoy the medical school experience um mm. but uh, it, it, being in london was fantastic you know seven million people uh, such a vibrant place to be and always exciting things going on stuff to do um i used to really enjoy taking in shows um concerts all the you know the, the great artists of our time would always come to london mm. they wouldn't bother about you know uh, towns like nottingham unfortunately so i i really enjoyed it um it was very uh you know uh very just just a wonderful place to be mm-hmm. so the london life compensated for the um interesting experience in medical school <laughs> i think from what we've 
previously been talking about, we had quite similar experiences as to what we went through in medical school. Um, it was very traditional, um, the education we had, very serious, uh, very unforgiving. Um, mm. And uh, the, the approach we had uh, from professors and from uh, hospital doctors was, um, uh, well, we were talking about this a moment ago. Clearly, they've changed the approach now in, in much more of a supportive mm. way uh, where, you know, individual students' needs are met and they're taken care of at an emotional level um, and they have um, robust systems in place to make sure that emotional well-being is taken care of. There was none of that in my day, or at least mm. none that we were consciously made aware of, mm. uh, which, which was a little disappointing. And uh, it was a, it could be quite a lonely time and, and a very stressful time. I've never not come across anything as uh, demanding as uh, the experience I had in medical school at academic level. The teaching was variable, should we say, mm. but most of it was self-directed learning. Yes. Uh, and that uh, that kept us busy, but it got me also into a good habit um, in terms of continuing that self direction and expanding mm. learning beyond the traditional medical school, looking more into health and wellness, and you know what what we really need to do to achieve these kind of optimal levels of health that I try and encourage people to take on board. The kind of things that we don't really learn in medical school. When 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 did you start looking into that? Was it sort of before medical school, during medical school, after? Uh, it was mostly afterwards. Um, I sort of started to look at things that, you know, uh, more in terms of what we can, what we want in terms of our health rather than what we need. Mm. Uh, what we often look at is that doctors are great at um, helping people with illness, but um, in terms of really helping people achieve optimal health, where they have energy and well-being and vitality, and you know, they're able to perform mm. at, at their optimal levels. That's not something that modern medicine really teaches, but I feel that's something that a lot of people need. And that's what got me interested in that. How can we work to help people in those situations? Most people aren't really ill enough to see a doctor, mm. but mm. they also don't have that level of health and energy and wellness about them. And my approach really is to try and help those people who really want to um, step up to that level and you know, get themselves in a position where they feel they're in a much stronger position to serve, whether it's their, their business or their clients or their family. Mm-hmm. Was there a particular experience that sort of allowed you to look into this aspect? Um, there was, yes. There was one particular day actually in practice, um, probably about six or seven years ago now, um, where I was working, I, I was a qualified GP and working in my my own practice. And that morning, it was a Monday morning, I'd seen almost 50 patients. Wow. Um, and um, as you know, each patient comes in with an average of 2.7 problems. <laughs> so, you know, we were kept, it was an incredibly busy morning. And by lunchtime, um, I was just physically, emotionally drained. I felt like I had nothing left. And I still had the rest of the day to go. Yeah. And uh, I just you know, took a few deep breaths and sat back and just had to think about, you know, what I'd just been through and looked at all the patients that I'd seen, quickly reviewed my notes. And I, I realized that. Almost 80% of the cases I'd seen were people presenting with lifestyle conditions, mm. uh, problems directly related to their diets or, or lifestyle or you know how they were engaging uh, or approaching uh, their professions or relationships. Mm. And everything seemed to build from there leading to illness. And so I thought, well, you know, is 
what what's the best approach to teach uh, to to help these people um is it always going to be about pills and potions and you know counseling and psychotherapy is is that is that the only way mm. and and i realized that you know lifestyle problems obviously also need lifestyle solutions mm. and there are a lot of things that we can do that are scientifically backed that help address many of the problems that that we all face day to day that can potentially reduce the amount of uh, demand that is being made on on healthcare professionals at you know what are uh, incredibly busy times. Mm. So I started to look at that and really accumulate everything I could. Um, I mean, we all know that we need to eat well and exercise mm. and um, stop smoking and not drink so much alcohol. Mm. Uh, that's that's the common sense stuff. What else is there? What mm. what what more can we do? And and where's the science to back it? And how powerful is it? And so. In my research, well, not my personal research, but you know, looking into uh, the research papers that are available, mm, mm. Um, found out some incredible things about health and wellness, mm. and all related to a natural approach. So I decided to bring it all together and, and write a book about it, uh, which I got published um, early last year, to really present a, a nice sort of clean summary of, of all the things that, that we could potentially do uh, that can actually support our health without pills and potions and mm. doctors and nurses and uh, so that got published in january last year and uh, it did rather well it became a bestseller on amazon wow. uh, here in the uk us canada wow. australia and um it's been well received so yes that's led to uh, further inquiries about my work i've been doing a lot of writing a few speaking engagements and uh, really doing everything i can to get this message out there about how we also need to approach health and wellness naturally yes absolutely doctors have their um you know have their role and medications have their place mm -hmm. and at the same time you know we've also got to look at the underlying cause in these situations and how we can help address that mm. uh, it, it's it's interesting that you mentioned your previous teachers being hospital doctors um was that the reason why you went into gps because you found better te teachers in in general practice or was it you've always wanted to become a GP or how, how did it work out? Um, I, I didn't enjoy the undergraduate uh, mm. hospital medicine mm. approach uh, mm. but when I got uh, into hospital medicine as a postgraduate I actually enjoyed it very much um, mm. on the whole. I was in hospital medicine for seven years. I did um, lots of different specialties, three years in casualty, um, pediatrics, wow. general medicine, general surgery, orthopedics, uh, obstetrics, gynae. Um, and, uh, and and yes, I, I, I enjoyed it very much. Um, I don't think there was a situation where I would compare the teaching of hospital to general practice or whether one was better than the other. It was very individual. It depended on the teacher mm. and, and on the approach and the style of that teaching that we received. You know, the old Chinese saying, there's, there's no such thing as a bad student, only a bad teacher, is one that I really do um, mm. uh, feel is true. So uh, I, think, uh, I think ultimately what brought me into general practice was, was how we managed to be able to look at pretty much everything that came in. Literally yeah. anything that walks through the door, we've got to have an understanding as to how we can help that person. Mm. Um, you know, if, if um, someone collapses on the street, we've got to know what to do. 
Um, you know, I was on a flight uh, last year from the Philippines, and they made that dread announcement over the tannoy, is there a doctor on board? Oh, um, and, uh, yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, I had to identify myself. Um, and, you know, fortunately, with my training and with, with, with my knowledge, I, I knew what to do to help that person. We managed to uh, to to help him and to land wow. safely on time. Well, so, yes. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm sure I'm excluded because I'm an eye doctor, you know, unless you've got an eye emergency. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm staying quiet. Well, I'm, I'm sure you have your, uh, your 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 basic training, and, and it's amazing how quickly some of these things come back to you when they need to. Oh dear, uh, yeah. I mean, you teach a lot. You know, you you. Um, uh, I was going to say teach your clients, but sort of coaching is different from teaching. I mean, what would you say a good teacher is is being about in your eyes? Understand the needs of the student, really. Mm, mm. Really connecting and understanding the needs of the student and having um, a, a good approach and a good style, um, which is totally honest and transparent. Um, it's interesting you said that I had a school reunion recently. One of my friends, um, one of my best friends, uh, who I hadn't seen for a few years, mm. he's, now, he's now a teacher, a French teacher, wow. which I found quite amusing because he was uh, you know, quite boisterous in lessons and, mm. you know, sometimes difficult to manage and and so i had to ask him this question you know how would you manage a student like you and um and he had a very very simple answer and and uh, he, he just said it's really really simple you know just just don't be an idiot mm. because mm. kids are really smart uh, he didn't mm. say idiot just to be clear he says something a little bit more offensive but <laughs> kids are really smart they 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 can see um a teacher for for what they are and mm. Know, they can pick up on behaviors they don't like or don't resonate with them and uh you know if they see that then then they will reject your teachings mm. they won't have any interest or any time for you and um you know so i think it's about building that relationship and um you know nurturing it and making sure there's there's trust that you're totally honest transparent with a genuine desire to help people mm. 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 yeah i mean my the teachers that I remember um, that influenced me um, are, are the ones, as you said, resonated with me, or, or people that I connected with on a, on, on a human level. Mm. And once I developed that human connection and trust, you pretty much believe whatever they say, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. And that's them imparting their knowledge rather than. Uh, and it's the same thing when you're sort of giving talks and and. and um, in, in speaking engagement, it's that connection, mm -hmm. you know, because it's easy to deliver a message. Mm -hmm. You know that that comes across very quickly, but it's it's what are they going to do with that message, or what are they going to do with that teaching? Yes, yes, I totally agree. And in in, in terms of your um, teachers um, in medicine in general, who is who is your biggest influence? Um. Do you mean like hospital doctors or general practitioners? Uh, well, there's no <laughs> distinction, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure it's uh, pretty uh, pretty amalgamated, or, or I could I could be wrong. Yeah, there was this one A and E consultant that I worked with, uh, who I was actually just talking to my wife about today, um, who was was just tremendous, um, and it wasn't as much his knowledge and his experience, but it was more to do with his his presence mm. his physical presence you know if, if things were just 
going crazy and, and we were in, in uh, the recess bay and casualty and everyone was just sort of running around and, and you know, we're trying to help this patient who's clearly in, in a sort of life or death situation. And this gentleman would just need to walk into the room and just having that presence, people would start to feel calm and, and, and he wouldn't, you know, move people out of the way and say, you know, I'm the consultant, get out of the way. He, he would just gently approach the situation and, you know, take responsibility and, you know, support the team, ensure everyone knows what they're doing and everything. And it was really inspirational to learn from someone like that, um, not just learning his knowledge and his wisdom, but also his mannerisms, his behavior, his style, his trait, his personality, um, his qualities, um, and, uh, you know, his character. Uh, so I think that he was probably the biggest influence uh, that I had in terms of my, my, uh, my professional approach. He had the most incredible bedside manner, um, and, uh, just looking at him, how he'd engage with, with patients, um, and you know, how we could talk and communicate with them and make them smile mm. and reassure them and tell them, you know, it's going to be all right. Um, really sort of connecting with them, making time with them. These are the most valuable things that I learned about being a doctor, much more powerful. And you're not going to get that kind of stuff from textbooks. You've got to go out and find the people who do it mm. and spend time them to really actually absorb their approach so yes i think that was that was my my greatest influence and i'm kind of saddened that, that these elements of being a doctor nowadays they're not taught mm. um you know mm. and i think they need to be you know the people need to have that mm. education if, if they're not already doing it i think nowadays there seems to be such a sort of bureaucratic left-brained box ticking approach to medicine uh, which is unfortunately well some some would argue fortunately is probably going to be replaced by artificial intelligence very soon mm. um so you know I, I really want to well i really hope that uh, we can start to spread that authenticity back um and, and bring in the human element of caring and compassion for our patients yeah yeah absolutely i mean my uh, teacher uh, he was my uh, he was a rheumatology consultant while I was a house officer, and for him um, it was humour. The thing that really got to me was his great humour uh, in the most dire of situations. You know, all these chronic rheumatology patients who were inpatients and being given all these um, anti-inflammatories and anti-metabolites, and yet he brought humour in onto the ward. And he brought, um, as you said, that, that, that human element to things. And, you know, humor is, is very powerful because it sort of makes the, uh, you know, even the mundane enjoyable. Absolutely, yes, yes. Um, uh, obviously, I think we do see a lot of dark humor in medicine and mm. hospital practice now, which, which I don't necessarily agree with. Um, you know, perhaps some humor arising from cynicism or sarcasm. Um, as to where things are right now and what's happening in the health service. Um, but actually bringing that sort of happiness and joy with the kind of humor that you're sharing, um, yes, that I mean, that's priceless. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it was compassionate humor rather than, you know, the ironic. I mean, I, I still think that ironic humor and dark humor has a place in um, oh, in our situation and in our profession. And, you know, for me, when when I wrote my book, I used a lot of dark and ironic humor and sarcastic humor because that's that's who I am. You know, I'm a very sarcastic person, um, which I used to use a lot previously. 
and I was a proper idiot, but now I've kind of embraced the the diplomacy of situations rather than the sarcastic of situations. So yeah, humor is so powerful, and I think I mean for for me, life is about humor and, and comedy. Um, that way, you can understand the, uh, the contradictions in life and the paradoxes. But hey, let's not sort of go a bit too um, woo woo. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think are we are we still there? Poor network connection. You still there, Shan? I'm still here. Yes. Cool, cool, cool. Excellent. So, um, uh, did did you go through a bout of disillusionment or um, thinking to yourself, "Well, this this sort of GP land is not really working for me"? Yes, I did. Um, I did. Um, it was actually about a year ago. It wow. was sorry, very recently. I think referring to what I was talking about earlier. I mean, simplicity comes from the removal of obstacles, and there are a lot of organizations in place right now, such as NHSE, various CCGs, that are actually creating more obstacles uh, for the delivery of healthcare, which is Mm -hmm. very, very frustrating for doctors. Um, You know, in terms of what we have to do, um, it's it's creating more and more unnecessary work that is actually taking us away from patient care. so yes, I became uh, annoyed with that um, more than anything else, and I challenged it and I questioned it. And uh, I think the real ironic thing was that um, all the GPs I spoke to, to completely agreed with me, but um, none of them were actually prepared to support me or back mm-hmm. me or you know um, come with me to take the frustrations uh, and the um, the general irritations that were accumulating to present them to the stakeholders who can actually do something about it. Mm. So that became, uh, you know, that in, in addition to an already difficult situation, that became even more disheartening, uh, disheartening and, mm. and disillusioning. Uh, so yes, there, I think there are a lot of problems there. And I think um, there's a few different ways to describe it, whether it's uh, learned helpfulness or, or willful blindness. Mm. But, you know, ultimately, I think doctors around the country need to remember that uh, how much power they have. Mm. Right now, and how that is really being surrendered on a regular basis. Um, you know, these organisations, including the GMC, BMA, CCGs, CQC, mm. NHS England, we don't work for them; they work for us. Mm. We need to remind ourselves of that every day, mm. because you know, ultimately, if if every doctor on the planet decided to disengage with CQC, they would cease to exist. Mm. Um, if every doctor on the planet or anyone in the country said, you know what, GMC, you've hiked your fees up by a thousand percent over the last two decades, and uh, you know, uh, in exchange for what to mm. keep my name on a register, how how can you justify that? Um, and what are you doing to support us in these current situations? Um, so yes, there are a lot of frustrations for doctors right now, but I think at the same time. Doctors need to take a bit of responsibility about this mm. and actually recognize that, you know, we're the ones who are agreeing to these things. We're the ones who are inviting a lot of this stress. What, what can we do about it? How can we fix it? Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm always open to discussing remedies to fixing it. I'm never open to, you know, 
sitting in a forum debating or you know arguing or complaining about how bad things are nobody wants to hear that we all know how bad things are how are we going to make things better and i think probably the quickest way to do that would be to start to remove some of these ridiculous obstacles to care that have been put into place by senior managers and bureaucrats and uh, doctors in high positions of responsibility who actually don't practice clinical medicine anymore so it's it's as simple as that well i think it's a good starting point yeah, uh, yeah. i think uh you know we've, we've got to remember that you know how can we possibly take care of uh, 70 million people here in the UK mm. if if we're not really taking care of ourselves mm. um, if we're actually agreeing to all the stresses that are being put upon us I mean 20 years ago a GP uh, people would see their GP on average twice a year and now it's seven times a year mm. and we haven't had a, a similar increase in in funding um, and you know at the same time inflation has gone up um, mm. our actual overall uh, remuneration has gone down and so you know we're working harder for less money that's not taking us as far mm-hmm. and and we're wondering why we're stressed <laughs> yeah so yeah. i think it's solutions need to be made uh, or at least discussed at a high level here instead of you know a lot of the rhetoric that we hear from from the bma who are supposedly trying to represent uh doctors in in terms of what's happening right now i mean i actually decided to um take a break from the nhs november at the time i decided i was leaving i wasn't coming back um but in actual fact i missed it greatly but um why when i that? left why, why why did you miss it i why did i miss it i, I missed the um the one-on-one patient contact mm, mm, mm. i i really missed you know working with patients as a doctor and, and helping people i didn't mm. miss any of the nonsense that came with it, <laughs> um, but I recognise that you know I have to take care of that to to you know meet the other need. But what was interesting was when I left, not one person asked me why I was leaving. Um, you know, aside from my staff and my patients, there was no one within you know the, these high bureaucratic institutions who actually said, "Hang on, wait a second, we're losing doctors. Maybe we should sit down and talk to some of these doctors that are leaving and see if we can get an understanding as to why they're leaving." But nobody asked me, and I've had a number of friends leave. Nobody's asked them either. Um, so, you know, in the last year and a half, two years, we've lost a thousand GPs. No one's asking why. Wow. And there's, there's there seem to be various drives or campaigns to replace them, none of which are working. And, uh, you know, at the same, uh, same time, patient demand is going up and greater demands are being made of doctors. Um, it's It really is a situation that, is in desperate need of help. Yeah, you would have thought if a body's bleeding, you'd you'd stop the bleeding and find out why it's bleeding. Yes, yes, I see. There's still a surgeon at heart, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, it it just makes no sense um, yes. unless there's. Um, I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but you know, there, there there must be other motives as to why they're looking into other avenues of replacing doctors. Well, yes, I'm not a conspiracy theorist either, but I can't help thinking that there are people high up there with agendas. You know, mm. I, sat, I sat on our LMC. Um, I was invited to join our, our local medical committee, and I survived one meeting. I, I just <laughs> the most insufferable experience. There, you know, it was a room full of about 20 or 30 GPs, 
majority of which stayed silent. It was largely about four GPs who were actually openly speaking, including Peter Holden, who was one of the, uh, at the time, I don't know what he is now, but with the GPC. And it was just the most insufferable conversation, you know, just this learned helplessness and willful blindness as to what's really going on. And uh, I just... I just thought to myself, what's going on? You you all seem to be so terrified of upsetting the apple cart mm. for fear of missing out on a future MBE. What, what What is it that's making you have this ridiculous stance at the moment? Why aren't we doing things to make our lives easier for doctors and therefore for patients? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, having that sort of courage to stick your head out and um, say what's truly inside of you and what's what's causing the problems uh, on the ground you know that's i mean that's is it a society problem or is it sort of specific for doctors that we don't have enough courage of of conviction um i i don't know if it's courage as such um i just think that if i don't say these things it's gonna it's gonna harm me mm. you know it's mm. actually you know I have to push it down deep inside me. Mm. That's not going to be healthy. So, you know, coming out and actually saying things, not in an aggressive way, but, you know, with a deep desire to make things better for mm. for frontline NHS staff and for patients. Um, and, and they're the only groups that I care about, really. I, mm. I don't care about these organizations with their, their three-letter um, acronyms that they're meaningless <laughs> to me and, and, you know, I only, only pay them if I have to. Um, so, you know, I think that that's really the outcome. How, how can we make lives better for frontline staff and for patients? What can we do make things easier for us individually and collectively? So you've so you left the NHS. What what did you do after that? I took a break. It was you know the first time I, I've been away from the NHS or from any profession actually for. 17, 18 years, yeah. and uh, so it was. I took a little break. I've been doing, did a lot more writing, um, and spent time with my family, um, and and decided to get back into it around about April time this year, and uh, just been taking work uh, that for places and for people that uh, really resonate with me, um, rather than you know jumping back into the uh, the partnership model, which is you know increasingly looking flawed as they continuously unilaterally renegotiate the contracts uh, without any prior discussion um, with, with general practitioners. Mm. So um, I decided I want to stay away from that model. Um, I just don't feel it's sustainable and it's heavily in favor of um, CCGs and not in favor of doctors or patients. What, would, what did you write about during that period of, of, uh, of rest? I wrote about what I'm really passionate about, which is health and wellness, natural health and wellness, mm. um, without medication, without doctors, without nurses, you know, what we can do to help support that. Um, I, I did a lot of writing for uh, a few um, magazines, newspapers, uh, just stuff that was interesting, mm. that uh, was topical. Um, we had Mental Health Awareness Week in, in May. And it was a very busy time writing about um, mental health from a primary care perspective. Um, and, uh, yeah, there were some interesting things that came up. There was a, a study in I think in February this year that came up talking about depression and how pretty much concluding that most of us need to be on antidepressants, which which mm. was fundamentally flawed. And, and I can't believe it was actually published um, mm. as a meta-analysis that included 45 unpublished 
articles uh, that were taken directly from drug companies. Um, and I thought, how can you include this and call it evidence? So yeah, I've, I've done I've done a lot of uh, different things, um, and uh, I've, I've enjoyed it all very much. Cool. And and what was was that when you wrote the book, the big scription? No, I actually wrote that while I was still working as a GP. Um, so okay. that sort of kept me busy in evenings and weekends. Um, and so that came out in January 2017. Right, right. How, how long did it take you to, to write the book? Um, I would say from beginning to end, um, about 15 months. Yeah, yeah. And what, actually, was that, what was that like? No, actually, it was less than that. I'm just thinking. So I, I started it... It was about 12 months, and then it took another six months to actually uh, decide a title and, and a cover and everything, and then go through all of the publication process. So yeah, it was about 12 months of writing. Um, what was that like? Uh, it, at the time, it was extremely difficult, very challenging, because I was a, a partner at a GP practice at the time, um, so I had um, you know those commitments as well. Um, very frustrating, um, but ultimately it was 100% worth it. And if if you can sort of tell us in a nutshell about the book and and where they can get it from and um, uh, what's next in terms of your writing. Well, yes, I mean about the book, it really goes back to basic principles. Um, you know, health, as you know, is defined as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, mm. not not just the absence of disease or infirmity. And that was written into the World Health Organization's constitution back in 1948, just before the inception of the National Health Service. Mm. And it's a pretty powerful definition. It's remained unchallenged all this time. And the three areas that jumped out at me are, are complete physical well-being, complete mental well-being, and complete social well-being. Mm. Now, just as a disclaimer, I don't have that, and I don't know anyone who does, but <laughs> it, it reveals an interesting approach as to what health really looks like. You know, uh, complete health of the body, complete health of the mind, and uh, complete health from the environment that we're placed in. Mm. And really building on those concepts, because as you know, the physical body, it's not a rigid structure. Mm. It's a fluid system and constant regeneration. You've got around about 40 trillion cells in your body right now, uh, that are constantly regenerating as we're having this conversation right now. Mm. Millions of your cells are dying and they're being replaced. Mm. So what can we do to support that constant regeneration mm. in terms of our diet, uh, our nutrients, our fluid intake, our activity levels? Um, and then same with the uh, mental well-being, the mind. You know, we have uh, an estimated 60,000 thoughts every day what thoughts are we having? What are the continuous thoughts we're having? And what do they lead to in terms of our beliefs, in terms of our emotions and subsequent actions and results? And is this supporting our overall health or mm. is it potentially detrimental? And then how can we hack that? How can we engineer that? How mm. can we have those kind of thoughts on a regular basis that actually take us towards health? Mm. And finally, social health, um, which I think is is something that's going to start to get a lot of attention over the next five or ten years is really how and who we interact within our environment. Yeah. So, you know, any biology student will tell you that we are our genes placed in our environment, mm. uh, genes expressed within an environment. So you can take two identical twins, raise one in uh, the UK and raise the other in, let's say, Australia. Mm. Bring them together at the age of 21, you'll have two completely different adults. Mm. They might look similar, but they'll be very different in terms of their attitudes, their beliefs, their behaviors, their approaches, 
um, their mannerisms, simply because they've been conditioned by the environment that they've been placed in. Yeah. So what environmental factors are we currently experiencing that are influencing our health? And what can we do to address those? Whether it's you know changing our environment itself or at least changing our perception of the environment we're in that's creating the health that we have. A typical example, when I lived in London, I was probably more ill than any other time in my life. You know, I was getting recurrent colds, I was very tired and drained a lot of the time. And then I moved home to Nottingham. It wasn't quite as bad. Um, and now I live out um, in the countryside between Nottinghamshire, just by the Leicestershire border, a beautiful green area. I don't fall ill anymore. Mm, um, mm, mm. Now, you know, there could be a lot of other factors involved in that. Uh, I, I absolutely don't dispute that. But, you know, just being out and, and having that sort of experience of, you know, getting good clean air and, and um, you know, come into contact with, with um, you know, people within our, my, my neighborhood who are extremely warm and friendly and pleasant and engaging, um, which wasn't quite my experience in, with the neighbors I had in, in London. Mm, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, can have a tremendous impact on 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 how we feel on our overall health so they were the three areas that i was looked at that's why the book is called the balancing the three principles of enduring health because this is all about a balance mm. these three mm. areas need to be in balance to support health when we're out of balance that is ultimately what leads to illness mm. uh, whether you're looking at heart disease type 2 diabetes um hypertension obesity cancer strokes anxiety depression all come out of some kind of imbalance within our physical or mental or social well-being. Mm -hmm. we, if, we get that, if we get those areas back in balance, we can start to see some very real changes in those conditions and how they're being managed. Um, you know, it's no secret that whenever you see a doctor, uh, if a doctor finds that you have high blood pressure um, that doesn't need medication immediately, they will always tell you the same thing. Stop smoking, lose weight. Um, clean up your diet, get some exercise, avoid stress, uh, cut out the salt, and uh, come back and see us in, in a week or two. Um, but if everybody did all of those things, you know, we'd manage to uh, cure mm. many, many cases of hypertension mm. without ever needing to rely on these medications that people go on. So, you know, I think one of the things we've got to look at in healthcare is what systems can we put in place that will help empower people to make these positive, healthy lifestyle choices that are proven to naturally improve our health without any side effects. And, and are you looking into this or are, are we looking into this enough? Do you think that's something that we're not looking to, into? Or? I think people are starting to look into it. I'm really enthused to see a lot of doctors coming uh, and talking about it more um, mm -hmm. with the rise of things like lifestyle medicine um, and, uh, you know, looking at um, root cause mm -hmm. analysis of what we're doing with our, with our health and, you know, the, how there are very real situations that people are actually managing to reverse many medical ailments without the need to see doctors mm, mm. I think that's tremendous and I, and I think it needs more more support and more attention yeah I mean just having this discussion and sort of getting the airwaves and um, being accepted amongst medical professionals that, that, that lifestyle is a uh, um, a uh, a force to be reckoned with um, does make a big difference it does I mean you know basic biology principles if it's not genetic it's lifestyle mm, mm, what else could it possibly be it's got yeah. to be lifestyle so you know 
a lifestyle problem also needs a lifestyle solution. Mm, mm. And, that's and really the you know, as as you said, genetics can change. So you've got the epigenetic aspect of of genetics as well, where you can switch on and switch off genes. Yes, we've got a background mutation rate of one in a hundred thousand as well. There's always that to be remembered. But you know, we can't necessarily directly influence that. We can always influence the lifestyle choices we're making. Mm, mm, mm. And and you've 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 gone into the um, corporate sector as well um, because you're doing work with you've got the health studio that you're working. Yes, the Health Studio is my organization. The, the work I do in the corporate sector is along with the World Health Innovation Summit, where we're taking um, healthy workplace initiatives into organizations and actually looking at what they're doing to support their employees uh, with their own health and wellness mm. and uh, what more can be done to help support that. And uh, that's a really powerful um, uh, program that we we've put together very recently. Actually, I had a, a meeting this morning with with uh, my my colleague uh, Daksha Patel, who's who's helped to uh, co-create the pro- the program that we're using. Mm. And um, yes, there's there's a lot of evidence to support uh, health and wellness within the workplace. And I think wellness is kind of an overused word. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing it everywhere nowadays, and and even I'm getting sick of seeing it. Um, but you know. <laughs> Really simply, what what does it mean? It's just about being in in a state of health. Mm. Uh, we've already defined what what health means, and um, you know, I think what's really important to note is is what wellness can do for an organization. Um, I don't think I mean organization they don't need wellness. It's about whether they want it, mm. and that's, that's the message I try. So I, and I never sort of push this on anyone saying you need this because of these reasons or that reasons. My question really is is what do you want? Um, you know, there's uh, scientific literature in the American Journal of Health Promotion, the Economist Intelligence Units and Humana uh, that have given some incredible stats to support workplace wellness programs, including a 27% reduction in sick leave, um, uh, a 67% increase in morale and engagement, 45% improved employee retention, 89% increase in uh, happiness and well-being, and mm-hmm most significantly a 581% return on investment. So this is what we try and push with the World Health Innovation Summit is that this is not an expense, it's an investment into mm. your, uh, the wellness of your, of your team. Mm. Uh, because you, know, you take care of them, as Richard Branson says, they'll take care of the clients. And um, it's really important to make sure that employees, team members, um, have their health and wellness needs met so they're able to go out there and perform at their best and, and really um, add as much value as they can. Mm. And, and it's looking at that holistic approach as well. You mm. know, that you know, It's an organization and individuals within an organization. It's looking at individuals as well as the organization as a whole. Yes. Yes. And the argument I give is, is we don't need to make wholesale lifestyle changes across the board. Mm. Uh, with individuals or with organizations it's really simple you know what, what are the low-hanging fruits what what two or three changes could be easily implemented into a lifestyle of an individual or an organization that will just have a domino effect on everything else mm. and it can sometimes be as, as simple as you know um, healthy snacks instead of uh, pastries uh, on the coffee stations, or it can be, you know, uh, group activities in the evenings. Mm. Um, there are various different things and different measures that that, uh, that people can take to to support that. 
And uh, so it's really a matter of just finding two and three that they can stick to, see how they go over a few months, measure um, and review. Cool, cool. We're, we're, we're coming towards the end of the, um, of the podcast. Um, if people want to get hold of you, what's, how's the best way to get hold of you? How can they contact you? Okay, so they can reach me through my website, thehealthstudio.net. Um, I'm uh, active on LinkedIn, so that's under Dr. Shan Hussain. Um, they're the, probably the two easiest ways to get in touch with me. Cool, excellent, and uh, we'll uh, we'll put some notes about the uh, show on the website and all of the links to your to uh, Shan's uh, details. Um, I always like to ask a question at the end um, about yourself. Um, so, so what would you tell yourself, uh, the nineteen-year-old Sean about to go to medical school in London? What are the three top things you 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 tell him today? Okay, right, great, thanks for that. <laughs> so the, the first thing would probably be stop worrying about you know what what people might say or think or, or mm. believe about you. You know, ultimately, you, you can never control what other people are going to say or think or believe. You know, that they're they're going to do whatever they want and, and say whatever they want. Just stay focused on, you know, being authentic and being who you are and, and working on, on, on what it is you want to do. That would be the first thing. The second thing that I'd say would, would be, you know, stop eating so much crap. <laughs> I, I was uh, particularly unhealthy at that age. Um, and, uh, you know, start to, you know, eat healthy and, and make sure that you're, you're taking care of your health and, and, and your wellness, you know, because that obviously makes you in a stronger position to deal with everything else that you have in life. Mm. Uh, mm. And there was a tremendous amount happening at that time in London back in 1994. Um, it was, it was a great time to be there. There were a lot of wonderful things happening. Um, but it was also very overwhelming. Um, mm. The third thing I would say would be make sure you're, you're taking some time out for you mm. to look after you, um, you know, do things that you need to do to relax, de-stress, unwind. Um, and the most powerful thing that I've, I've been doing um, over the last seven or eight years now on a regular basis is, is practicing meditation. Mm. I can, you know, detach, de-stress, release, unwind and become present, centered and grounded. Um, and it allows me just to just to really sort of get into some stillness while you know crazy things are happening uh, all around the world. Um, it puts me in a position where I can actually be ready to embrace that if I need to. Um, so they'd probably be the top three things. Cool, cool. That's absolutely excellent. You know, that's going to make um, a lot of people sit up and, and and think about where they're going. Um, at that young age. Great, Sean. Well, thank you for your time today. It's been absolutely wonderful, really insightful, and uh, looking forward to um, more books from you. Thanks, Sean. You're very welcome. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening, everyone, and looking forward to um, you again uh, having your uh, spirit surgically not removed. Okay, guys, take care. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Surgical Spirit podcast. For all the latest in the world of Surgical Spirit, don't forget to follow on Twitter at The Third Eye Doc and catch me on Facebook at the page The Third Eye Doctor. You can visit the website at www.thethirdeyedoctor.co.uk for more information on the work that I do. And please send us feedback and questions and suggestions for the podcast. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. 
I've been Dr. Haida Al-Hakim, and I'll see you next time.